Cultivating Place is made possible in part by support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This week on Cultivating Place, we continue our high-elevation garden lens in Vail, Colorado, at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens, leaders in research and conservation of North American alpine plant communities. The Alpine Zone has long been one of interest to plant enthusiasts worldwide across time and space due to sheer admiration for and interest in the rugged and resourceful plants and wildlife that have evolved to endure and thrive in the extreme conditions, extreme cold or wind, sun, heat, drought, snow, and ice. As the conditions of our generous planet change with the climate crisis, the Alpine Zone is now a last refuge for plants and wildlife migrating in search of cooler conditions, and as a result, this zone is of great interest to researchers looking not only to preserve this highly sensitive environment, but also for lessons on adaptation for us all. Nicola Ripley is the executive director, and Nick Cortens is the curator of the plant collections of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail. The gardens team of scientists have authored the North American Botanic Garden Strategy for Alpine Plant Conservation, which includes multiple objectives for increasing awareness and understanding about alpine environments, to further conservation efforts for these zones, and the lives who have co-evolved there. Nicola and Nick join me today to share more about their high elevation enthusiasm and efforts. Welcome to you both. Thanks very much. We're looking forward to talking to you this morning. Thank you, Jennifer. I would love to get started by having both of you describe both your title and your role there at the garden. So my name Nicola Ripley. I'm the executive director at the gardens. I've been with the gardens for a long time, about 20 years. I rose up through the ranks, came in as the director of horticulture, um, which I did for about 10 years and then became um, executive director 10 years ago. And my role at the gardens is to sort of make sure that we have a good strategic direction. I um, work with the board of directors very closely. We have a 15 member board that is the visionary group for the gardens that helps us with fundraising. And uh, I work closely with them to make sure that we keep in the right direction um, and we have an updated strategy going forward. Um, You know, I oversee the staff at the gardens and work closely. We have a wonderful team of people uh, who enjoy working here and, um, you know, we, we work closely as a team. What gets me up in the morning is conservation work and To me, it's absolutely critical that botanical gardens play a role in connecting people with plants, getting people to appreciate and understand plants, and and therefore to 
be interested in a role in conserving them. And we focus particularly on the alpine environment. So as beautiful as the gardens are, and you know, I, I know that um, most of the people who come through the gardens enjoy them because they are a beautiful place to be. For me, um, it goes much deeper than that. And it's the, the role that we play in leading people to appreciate, understand, and therefore to conserve plants is what gets me up in the morning and into the office. And Nick, let's move to you. Remind us of your title and your role there at the garden. And then I want to ask you that same question of a a distilled kind of mission statement or kind of North Star for what you do and why you do it. Yes, Jennifer. uh, My role is curator of plant collections. And I have been with the gardens for, this is my 11th year now. like Nikolai, I've also rose to the ranks, um, starting as an intern and then becoming a gardener and horticulturist to the curator now. Um, my overall title is uh, not just what I do every day as curator, um, it's curating the plant collections and growing it. Uh, we wear many hats, Nicola does too, around the gardens. But what gets me up in the morning too is to come in and and to see the plants blooming and learn something new every single day and to curate and maintain the best possible collection of alpine and rock garden plants uh, in the United States. And if that maybe the world. So my vision is always uh, striving to be one of the best alpine botanic gardens in the world. The overall idea that I have for my role is that I, we keep growing in our Um, ever-expanding species in the gardens and that we aesthetically make it um, amazing for the public to come and enjoy every year. So I'd love to go back a little bit before we go forward and dig into the gardens themselves and their history and their future goals and get a little bit of history on both of you. And Uh, a sense of where you were born and raised and the people and places and plants that grew you into people for whom these would be values um, and sources of great delight as well. And why don't we just go ahead and start with you, Nick, and then we'll move back to Nicola. Tell us a little bit about um, your earliest influences. Oh, well, it begins actually basically when I was born. Um, I grew up in a biodynamic vegetable CSA farm in upstate New York, uh, where I um, was first exposed to vegetables and plants and um, Waldorf education, which really exposes um, kind of the the curiosity of nature from an early childhood. Um, And from there, I really just kind of loved being outside. And after that, wanted to do something with that when I graduated. So then from there, I went to school at Longwood Gardens in Pennsylvania, and I went to school for their public horticulture professional gardener training program. So I went uh, after high school in 2008 and graduated in 2010. It's a two-year-long intensive program where we get hands-on and classroom horticultural training um, in possibly one of the best botanic gardens in the United States. Um, And then graduated in 2010 in March and came out here in May of 2010 
where it was still snowing, um, which was a huge surprise to me <laughs> coming from the East Coast. And um, I had absolutely zero knowledge of alpine plants or rock garden plants for that matter, um, or West Coast plants. So it was um, a whole new world for me when I first moved here. And um, I fell in love instantly. I always have been a big person of the mountains, a big skier. So this happened to be kind of paradise for me, a botanic garden in a world-class ski town. So I was instantly hooked. Great. Um, There's nothing like a a May snowstorm in in Colorado or or a June one. So Nicola, let's move to you. And um, same question, you know, who were the the people and places and plants that grew you into a person for whom conservation would get you up in the morning and uh, maybe start with where you were born and raised and take us through your training that brought you to Betty Ford. So I grew up in the Northwest of England um, in garden country, really, but um, actually never was, uh, didn't spend a lot of time visiting botanic gardens growing up, but my dad was a mountain climber. And so all of our Mm. summer holidays were spent Mm. out in the Yorkshire Dales and in the Pennines of Northern England. And I grew um, really to love mountaineering and to love the plants that grew in the mountains. We spent um, a lot of time in Scotland and uh, the Lake District climbing and so got to know a lot of the um, British Alpines and that's how I got really interested in the environment and plants in particular. I went to the University of York and did a degree in biology And my uh, thesis was on plants of limestone pavements in Northern England. And that led me to um, work with Nature Conservancy in the UK, um, looking for sites of special scientific interest in the North Yorkshire Moors National Park. I realized after about 18 months that I was going to need a higher degree to, to really move up in the plant world. And I chose Bangor University, which is the University College of North Wales in um, just in the Snowdonia, just outside the Snowdonia National Park. Mm. Um, yep. I did um, spent a couple of years in Bangor at studying ecology and did my thesis on the alpine plants of Snowdonia, which led to doing some work with the Institute of Terrestrial Ecology based in Bangor, which is the um, British government research branch for ecology, and started to work on more work on the alpines of Snowdonia. During that time, I saw a job advertisement with Denver Botanic Gardens and Paniotti Calliades, who was then curator of the Alpine collection. I applied for the position, but by that time they had filled the job. And, but instead of uh, throwing my resume away, they sent it up to Betty Ford Alpine Gardens where they were in the early stages of uh, developing the gardens. And uh, so I came out from England to work for the nursery that was growing the alpine plants for the gardens. Um, 
it was a number of years before the gardens was hiring staff so i continued to work for the nursery for a few years and then i had a job as an environmental consultant locally doing environmental impact reports and uh, wetland delineations and then um was invited to become the director of horticulture which in the gardens which was the first time that they had had a position like that um and that was in about 2000 um and then in 2011 i became the director of the gardens yeah i want to now move which I think is a perfect segue from from what you have just told us into a little bit of history of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens. And I, I want to have you start, Nicola, with giving us some definitions. Because we use these terms, and I think people have a general concept of them, but not a very specific one in, in many cases. Can you go ahead and, and give us a little bit of overview of the general idea of alpine environment or garden um, or both and then maybe give us a little bit of differentiation between the alpine environments you were experiencing in um, in the United Kingdom and in Snowdonia versus what you are experiencing there in Vail, Colorado. So uh, we define the alpine environment as the land above the trees, the land beyond the where trees can grow. Mm -hmm. And what's very interesting to a lot of people is to realize that that's not just at a certain elevation, that that elevation changes depending on many different things, but particularly on altitude and latitude so areas that are very northerly in latitude or very southerly in latitude can have alpine plants at much lower elevations right and so give listeners a sense of exactly what kind of elevation and geology you uh, are gardening in there in vale colorado so we're at 8,200 feet here in Vale. So we're actually not in the Alpine environment exactly in Vale itself. We're in the montane environment. The timberline in Colorado is at around about 11,000 feet, depending on whether you're on a north facing slope or a south facing slope. Um, so lots of things affect that exact tree line, but generally speaking in Colorado, it's about 11,000 feet. So at the gardens, we're in a beautiful setting and we're surrounded by mountains, all of which are alpine and rise up to, you know, 14,000 feet um, in Colorado. Mount of the Holy Cross is our closest 14,000 foot peak, but we are in a very good position to be able to grow a lot of these alpine plants in as close to their natural setting, um, you know, as, as any garden in the United States can be. This is Cultivating Place. 
Nicola Ripley is the executive director, and Nick Cortens is the curator of plant collections at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado. The garden is a member of Botanic Gardens Conservation International. We'll be back with more about the love of research and conservation efforts in the land beyond the trees. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners like you and by generous support from the American Horticultural Society. Soon to celebrate its 100th year anniversary, the AHS has been a trusted source of high-quality gardening and horticultural information since 1922. The mission of the Society blends education, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship with the art and practice of horticulture. Members of AHS receive the award-winning flagship magazine, The American Gardener, and free admission and other discounts to more than 345 gardens with the Reciprocal Admissions Program. Listeners of Cultivating Place can receive a $10 discount on the annual individual membership of $35 by visiting www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. For your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Together, we grow better. Hey, it's Jennifer. And so August is here, round and redolent, ripe and heavy with the season aging. At this time of year, I treasure the early cool mornings at home in the garden. I treasure too outings to meet plants, both old and new to me, in meadows, along the coast or along creeks and in the mountains. Whether it's the Sierra or Cascade ranges of my now home or the Rockies of my birthplace. As many of you know, I was born and raised at 8,000 feet in Colorado, and so to even listen to Nicola and Nick describe the Betty Ford Gardens in Vail seems, mm, it seems homey to me. But then, have you noticed that no matter where you go, if you recognize plants there, you automatically feel more at home? Yep, me too. We're back now to our conversation with Nicola Ripley, the executive director, and Nick Cortens, the curator of plant collections at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado. As we come back, Nicola shares more about the history and early founding of the gardens and why and how this impacts all of us as gardeners and caring land stewards. So the garden was first started by um, a local nursery owner uh, who who met uh, sort of an entrepreneur philanthropist, Helen Fritch, in about 1985. They met together and said that they had a vision for doing a public garden in Vail. And the primary reason for 
initiating the garden was to show people in this new community what kind of things will grow at 8200 feet mm -hmm. people were moving in the town was very new um, and people didn't realize that they could garden at 8200 feet and they didn't realize what kind of plants they could grow so the initial vision for the gardens was to demonstrate to the local population that there are hundreds and hundreds of plants that not only will grow in that mountain environment but really thrive in mm -hmm. it um we say it's like being in a florist's cooler that at night <laughs> the you know the the plants stay vibrant and stay um looking really good for a lot longer than they would at lower elevations so the in the early days that was the you know um the impetus for the garden and so in 1986 they formed an organization called the Vale Alpine Garden Foundation and they did a garden they were given a piece of land by the local uh, authority the town of Vale in front of the Gerald Ford Amphitheater in Ford Park and they did a small garden and showed the town what kind of things that they would like to do in a public garden in Vale. And it was very much not what the town expected, I don't think. It was um, a rock garden with, you know, plants from the Himalayas and, you know, plant, alpine plants from all over the world. But it was beautifully put together and the town was very pleased and um, offered the group a larger area to keep spreading. And so in 1988, they were starting um, the next phase of the garden, which was what we called the Mountain Perennial Garden at that time. And um, it was a, a decision was made to approach Betty Ford and say, you know, this garden is developing in Ford Park next to the Gerald Ford Amphitheatre. With your and your love of gardening, we would very much like to name the gardens in honor of Betty Ford. And she was absolutely delighted. And she um, joined the team that was starting the gardens and became a great spokeswoman for the gardens. She would attend all of our fundraising events and turned the first shovel of dirt in the <laughs> gardens and cut the ribbon to open them. And it was to, ha to have invitations to join President and Mrs. Ford in the gardens was, um, was a great boost to the group that was getting the gardens started. Um, when President Ford was in the White House, he used to come out to Vail so often that they began to call Vail the Western White House. He loved skiing and was a big outdoorsman and um, they did so many things for this community and really put Vail on the map and that's why there are so many things here uh, named in their honor. They had an apartment here where they stayed in the wintertime and then eventually moved to Beaver Creek and spent their summers here um, once they were, um, you know, past enjoying the skiing. Yeah. yeah. And so that, I think, takes us 
quite nicely um, back to you, Nick, to tell us a little bit more about the scope of the gardens now and the collection you are curating. Um, and and maybe uh, we'll start with that. Yeah, so looking back on the before and after pictures is quite dramatic, seeing uh, the trees that were planted only being five feet tall to now being 30 to 45 feet tall and how open it was compared to it, to it now. Um, and over the years, they have expanded the gardens dramatically. Um, when I came here, the rock garden had been built in 2000. But over the last 11 years, we've expanded even more into a new visitor center, education center with an alpine house. We have about four new rock gardens that were built in the last um, couple of years. Um, we're also hoping to expand into further parts of the uh, park as well down the road. But um, yeah, the collection has grown dramatically uh, since its inception. And each year lends itself to a new area, I think, to improve on as gardens age. So do the so do plants and so do trees get too big. And we want to keep in the theme that we are a rock garden, alpine garden, but at the same time, we want to uh, appeal to all audiences that come here that do want to see some perennials um, and not just the alpine and rock garden plants. So there's a fine balance of um, how many rock garden areas we should do versus kind of some of the more traditional perennial gardens as well. Um, but my favorite part is really building the rock gardens and um, using different types of rock to create um, a natural landscape, if you will, for these plants to live in. So it's really figuring out what, what type of plants grow better in certain parts of the garden. Um, and then in the last couple of years, we've really made sure to focus on curating a Alpines of the World collection. So we have several different rock gardens dedicated to regions of the Alpine regions of the world such as the Himalayas, Central Asia, the Alps, South Africa, and of course, North America, um, which is one of our largest collections, um, specifically Alpines of Colorado. So the Alpines of Colorado collection is really the big focus for me um, on growing as many Alpines we can find here in Colorado in the gardens itself. And we've been doing a lot of collecting with their conservation team and then propagating them to grow in the gardens as well. Um, so that's a big focus for myself and for Nicola and I to just keep growing North American alpines um, because they do so well. They, they are adapted to our climate. Yeah. And so how many Mm, I, I don't know if you can give this to us in, you know, like acres or areas. How big is the actual cultivated space that you are managing at this point? We're about four and a half, five acres. Yeah, of cultivated space. Uh, it's hard to put that. Um, but because these plants are so small, it's so concentrated. Right. Um, so we have uh, over about 3,000 species of um, different plants. And... Um, you know, you could, within about a hundred square foot area, have about two hundred species. So wait, I so, want and I want you to repeat that. You have three thousand different species 
there at the Betty Ford Alpine Garden? Uh, roughly around two and a half to 3,000 species. In a relatively small space, you have a remarkable number of species growing. And you've used a couple of phrases, Nick, that I want to unpack a little bit for listeners. You, uh, we, We're talking about a you know, like a more standard perennial garden and then being different than the rock garden and the alpine plants. Can you, can you run down, and, and maybe both of you will weigh in on this, about some of the characteristics that make an alpine plant an alpine plant? Because they are perennial, there are annuals, um, but they have these characteristics that really stand out um, as alpine conditions have you know, evolved them uh, to survive. Yeah, so I, a true alpine plant is a plant that would grow as above they have tree evolved line. And typically, to survive in an alpine and not all the time, environment. These plants are very small. Um, they have adapted to harsh wind, cold weather. Um, their leaves um, and flowers um, have adapted. So typically, they bloom very early in the spring so that they can set seed right away. And uh, sometimes they grow very compact because the wind is so incredibly strong. They also sometimes have very deep taproot systems to anchor them into the, the mountain when um, avalanches or just the natural um, rock slides that happen up high. Um, and they prefer cooler nights, um, high UV, which lends itself really well to veil. We do have a very high UV here. So the plants do really love that kind of hotter and brighter sun. Um, even though it is cool, uh, our highest temperatures here typically won't go over above 85 to 90, um, rare, rarely, but our nights stay pretty cool going down into the 40s and 50s. So that really lends itself well to growing alpines at our montane uh, conditions. And then um, rock, rock garden plants can be things that like their saxatile, they like plants that like growing in lean soils and rocky conditions. And then for perennials, we our perennial garden is really focused on mountain perennials that do well, that are hardy to our zone four uh, conditions. So not just our typical um, dahlias and peonies and whatnot, but um, we, we do focus on perennials that would do well, like delphiniums and uh, lark, larkspur, uh, columbines, penstemon, those are what we kind of keep in theme for our mountain perennial gardens. Plant, native plants you would find find there, a, a lot of which are great standard garden herbaceous perennials, you know, aconitums and the daisies and the, um, as you say, the, the columbine and the lupin and um, fantastic buckwheats. And so yes. when you think about your collections, um, Nick, and then we'll move back to, to Nicola for uh, another sort of related question, but what are your greatest holdings by genus? Um, our, well, that's a very good question. We have a very large collection of primroses, primula, mm -hmm. gentians, um, iris, and a lot of bulbous plants as well. Um, we've, we're ever expanding on the bulbous and geophytes um, of our collection. And then our alpines of North America um, in general. We, have, we hold the National Plant Collection of Alpines of Colorado from the American Public Gardens Association. 
So that we're very proud of and um, we keep a close eye on and we keep growing that collection every year. So a recent study that was done um, of our plant collection, which gets submitted um, to national databases on an annual basis, um, they, our gentian and our penstemon collections are both of nat national significance. This is Cultivating Place. Nicola Ripley is the executive director and Nick Cortens is the curator of plant collections at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado. We'll be right back with more of their passion for gardening at the highest of elevations. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, there is something of a double edge along Nicola's first description of the Alpine zone that is really sitting with me through this conversation. Her phrase describing the zone as the land beyond trees. I am in awe of the resilience and resourcefulness of the impressive diversity of plants and animals who make their lives in this zone above treeline. But this phrase seems to hold both strength and possible cautionary tale in a way too. If you know what I mean, the shadowy edges of that image, a land without trees, or maybe even plants, or maybe even a good many of the plants that we make our lives with and love so dearly. That shadowy image haunts me which is perhaps a good thing, isn't it? An unyielding, uncompromising guardrail on my choices and priorities. That's my hope anyway. We're back now to our conversation with Nicola Ripley and Nick Cortens, executive director and curator of plant collections, respectively, at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado. As we come back, Nicola is describing in greater detail more on the national significance of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens collection and this importance of documenting, collecting, growing, and researching alpine plants as we face a warming climate. We see the alpine um, ecosystem as something that is more vulnerable than I think a lot of people um, imagine. That uh, I think a lot of people feel that it's beyond the reach of human development mm. and therefore is intuitively protected. But unfortunately, like you say, as the tree line um, starts to move upwards, which it has been documented that it is doing that. Mm. And the number of frost days becomes smaller and smaller at higher elevations. You begin to get plants that are, you know, alpine plants grow on mountaintops because, not because they like it cold, but because they have found a way to outcompete plants from lower elevations. So as the climate warms, those other plants are able to move up and alpine plants have to find those environments that they are adapted to. So we 
are very concerned about that environment and we wrote a strategy which is called which is a document it's called the north american botanic garden strategy for alpine plant conservation and it has a number of objectives which are an education objective we want to get the word out to many people about the plight of the environment the alpine environment and how important it is that we take care of the plants up there. Botanic gardens are a very trusted source of good scientific information and so we're in a unique position to um, talk to our many, over a hundred thousand visitors a year and tell them how important this environment is. Mm -hmm. There's another target or objective in the strategy that is about increasing the number of people who are in the conservation uh, world and um, the goal of trying to, to get as many interns and scientists trained in alpine plant conservation so that we have more people working in the field. And then the two other objectives, one is in situ conservation, which means conserving the alpine environment in its in its wild setting. And we're able to do that by studying the most important plant areas for alpine plants. We go out into the field and we are documenting and starting a monitoring program. And so we can work with the forest service to let them know what kind of plants they have um, in their um, in their wilderness areas and their you know different management areas. And the same with the Bureau of Land Management. There are a few alpine areas under BLM um, jurisdiction, but mostly it's forest service. And then the other part of the strategy is the objective of conserving plants ex situ. And that's where seed banking is so important. So one of the most active programs we have is banking seed. And that's not just of rare and endangered alpine plants. We're focusing on even the most common alpine plants to make sure that they are in um, the Fort Collins National Seed Bank and to make sure that, you know, if something happens and something that we thought was very common, you know, could that could quickly change and we could find that more common alpine plants are, you know, becoming more threatened. And so our objective is to get those banked into these, um, you know, safe houses. Um, we are also doing some, um, you know, studies on those plants and their um, viability. And we will be working with the National Seed Bank to study the viability of these plants over time. There's a concern that alpine plants may not um, do as well in long-term seed storage as crop species. So right. um, that's something that we'll also be working with them to, to find out. Well, and what I one of the things I love about your work and this new um, kind of branching out of it in these last twenty years is the the value, of course, of collecting the seed and and having it in a seed bank. But as anybody who has studied seed knows, 
the balance of making sure seed is actually being grown out in its environment so that it is co-adapting and co-evolving as the conditions change is what your, your garden is a living seed bank. Are there successes beyond those two? And they don't have to be successes even, Nicola. I mean, are there, are there markers along this last 20 years in your work that you see progress being made that you are excited about, like those two um, publications? Yes, I mean, these these publications, I feel, sort of legitimizes the work that we've been doing for many years. Um, you know, the nice thing is, though, that, um, you know, the, the conversation in the world has changed. And I think that there is an increased interest in conservation. There's also an increased um, understanding that the climate is changing. And I think that it's become a lot easier to, um, to, to bring these things forward and to discuss them um, because of producing this strategy. You know, the funding has increased for the gardens, you know, in this realm. And we have, you know, a, a number of people who are, feel that this work is extremely important. And so we've been able to increase our staff in in that department. Um, what is your total staff right now, Nicola? So we we actually have quite a small staff, but we're a nine full-time and it's a very seasonal operation. So um, that expands up to about 30 people um, in the summertime during the height of the season. But we do have two gift shops that account for quite a lot of that um, staffing. But we bring in four interns in the summer. We have um, a, a conservation intern, an education intern, and two horticultural interns. And they're students from um, uh, conservation and environmental programs um, throughout the country. We've had a couple of international interns, but um, they come in and spend the summer with us. And it's a, obviously a very seasonal operation because um, during the winter time, we're under six feet of snow, so it's uh, it's uh, it, it's it's a very different garden in the winter time. But we have nine full time staff. Okay, and um, is there still a working nursery? I think a working nursery is um, is as sort of it sounds very grandiose compared with what we have. We have uh, we're in a very public park so we don't have a lot of behind the scenes space thankfully alpine plants do very well being grown outside and in cold frames so that's where we do most of our nursery production um, alpine nurseries are very few and far between these days so we've had to be to start growing a, a lot more of our own plants which of course makes them more valuable anyway because we know the origin of the seeds um, that we're growing these plants from but um, so we have mostly cold frames you know it's not large compared with some other large botanical gardens right 
And so, Nick, when you um, have these interns, your horticultural interns, come online each summer, and of course, the growing season there is really short. Um, maybe explain that that to listeners as well. But do you have um, kind of long term goals for your interns each summer, and what those what might those be this year? Yeah, so uh, our interns typically come in May, um, in mid-May, and for 12 weeks, so it's very short time. So uh, typically, we try to just get the gardens going um, as quick as possible up to, up to speed. Um, sometimes there'll be snow on the ground in some areas in, in parts of the, of the garden. So uh, it's a very quick and small window before July 4th, which is our busiest time of the, of, the su- of the summer season. So it's really about getting the gardens going. But on my end, I always take an intern or myself uh, to go out and start to inventory and document what is um, alive from the current, from the last season um, to make sure that the records are being kept up to date, that labels are correct. Um, that, those are some of the biggest uh, some of the biggest jobs I have in the spring, and then also to make sure that the gardens are looking um, good for for the summer season. Uh, we didn't really have an off season this year, it seemed. Um, we have been very busy even since COVID has hit. Um, we've seen probably some of the busiest uh, times in the past two years uh, because we are an outside botanic garden and we have very little indoor um, display uh, it, it made it very accessible for everyone to come. But I think for your question with the interns is that, yes, we do try and make sure that they have a project each season. And we try to cater to their expertise as they come in and adjust to what we think would do very well. But this year, we really want to focus on our labeling in the gardens. Um, the snow takes a very big toll on our labels, which is a very... Um, <laughs> tasking uh, job for for any of us and takes a lot of time and uh, energy to always produce them and then make them. So that's something that uh, one of the interns and myself will be really focusing on this year so that the public can really understand what these plants are um, because over time labels disappear, they break just due to the nature. Um, But in the long term, yeah, we we always try to just make sure that the interns get the most out of their summer and come away with a really positive experience and hopefully inspire to become future rock gardeners or alpine and plant enthusiasts. Any specific species you're super excited to uh, be growing this year that are new to the garden by any chance? Yes. Uh, so last year we built a uh, crevice garden dedicated to the caucuses of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. And it was very successful over winter with, um, we didn't lose many plants. So we have many new uh, drabas and um, edrianthus and some other things that um, have overwintered and done very well. And um, they were actually uh, collected by Paniodi and a team um, that went out to uh, Georgia a few years ago and then grown um, from seeds. So these are all wild collected from those countries. and. Now they are living in our collection. Um, so that is something that we're very excited about having in our collection awesome. this year. So as you both look to the future with, you know, a very solid number of years for both of you in this place and 
in the heart of this organization. And maybe this is, you know, where uh, you could talk a little bit more about the book as well, but I would love to have each of you share um, your greatest joys in this work and in being a partner to this garden. Um, you know, there's that wonderful quote that we exploit what we value, but we protect what we love. And um, I would love to sh have you sh have you just share your own personal joy in this work. And maybe there's an anecdote you can share to illustrate that. And why don't I go ahead and start with you, Nick, and then we'll move back to Nicola. Uh, yeah, so there's nothing greater than seeing something that you've collected in the wild um, that you watch grow in, and, and then grow through the next winter and baby it through the summer to get it up to size and then grow it into the gardens and then f finally see it flower. I think there's something, just something that I can't explain that makes me so happy to see. It takes so much time for just something from seed to bring such joy to me. Um, it's also interacting with the public. I really enjoy that aspect of what we do every day. I love talking to the public and educating them and meeting people from all around the world. And that's what public horticulture is to me. And it's brought me to so many places around the world as well. And it's so connected. It's such a small world. Um, I think that's something that is so different from just um, maybe landscaping or gardening for your, uh, for yourself, that public horticulture is this much bigger idea that really connects a lot of botanic gardens and people from everywhere. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And Nicola, what about, what about for you and your great joys in this work? I think for me, the, what's given me the greatest joy is um, to be able to take the um, conservation of alpine plants to sort of almost a global important level. We attended the um, International Alpine Botanical Gardens um, in France a couple of years ago and connected with the Alpine Gardens in Europe, which was very exciting for me. Our focus is mostly on conservation in North America, but I feel that for a small garden, we've really, we're really playing a leadership role in this particular ecosystem by deciding that, you know, this is, this is something that should be a focus of a, a, a garden named an Alpine garden. I think that it, it, it's been really very exciting to me to see what a small garden can do. And by focusing our resources cleverly and strategically, um, we have created the first list of Alpines of North America that, you know, something as simple as that, um, you, you don't realize that it doesn't actually exist. And it's not really until you understand what all those plants are that you can know whether you're reaching milestones in, uh, in conserving them. And so I really feel going forward we you know we we may not be we we have a, a limited um 
size of our building where we can have staff, but we're going to increasingly work with other botanic gardens to be focusing on plants in different regions of North America and playing that leadership role um, for me has been the, the most exciting part of our evolution as a garden. I am so excited about the new book, On the Roof of the Rocky Mountains, The Botanical Legacy of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens, Vale's Alpine Treasure, written by Sarah Chase Shaw. Thank you both for being guests on the program today. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's been an honor and pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you for having us. Nicola Ripley is the executive director, and Nick Cortens is the curator of plant collections at the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado. A new book highlighting the history and work of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens published earlier this summer, written by Sarah Chase Shaw, On the Roof of the Rocky Mountains, The Botanical Legacy of the Betty Ford Alpine Gardens, Vale's Alpine Treasure, is both beautifully illustrated with photographs of these rich alpine gardens and is a celebration of the global reach of the alpine ecosystem and the unique climate that supports and sustains the hardy plants and animals that inhabit it from pole to pole. Listen in next week when we dig back into the earthy pleasures and productivity of the passionate home gardener. We're joined by permaculturist Matthew Trum of Oroville, California, who shares his enthusiasm for just how much food and healthy soil you can grow on an urban lot. Join us. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more and enjoy many photographs of the magnificent Betty Ford Alpine Gardens in Vail, Colorado, definitely head over to cultivatingplace.com where every week's show notes are under the podcast tab there. From penstemon to phlox, lupin to salvia, aconitum to delphinium, and so much more, these high-elevation gardens will take your breath away. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.